whatever troubles, um, whatever um, situation, good or bad, know that the Lord has a plan and a purpose for your life. And part of that plan and purpose is that you would be here and that you would center yourselves around teaching, around singing, around praying and fellowship. This goes back uh, to the first century from Acts chapter 2. This, we're just following it in their footsteps. And um, what we'll discover today or rediscover for, for most of us is the power of what Carl laid out earlier, the five solas. And um, a lot of times history is looked at as boring uh, or sort of irrelevant. You know, we live in a culture and society that has infected us in many ways that whatever is the latest, greatest, newest thing is the thing we're going to put all our attention and effort towards. And rarely do people stop and pause long enough to look back on things. And so today we're going to take a look back uh, to the story of a Catholic monk, former, he, he's now a former Catholic monk, but he was a Catholic monk in the year of 1517. And we're going to take a look at his life and we're going to ask the question, uh, how does what happened then affect us now? And how are we going to apply the spirit of the Reformation to modern day Convergence Church or modern day you, modern day your family? Does it apply? Um, in a couple days, two days from now, there will be a holiday of sorts, if you want to call it that, um, where people will dress up like their favorite superheroes, they'll dress up like uh, their favorite ghouls and goblins, and they will parade through the streets of your neighborhood, knocking on doors, knocking, ringing doorbells, asking the question, uh, trick or treat. And very rarely do I see anyone trick these guys, so most people give them treats. And we know this holiday, uh, especially in our modern-day America, is one of the most profitable holidays of all the holidays. Does anyone want to guess, besides my family, uh, Audrey, let me ask the question first. Does anyone want to guess how much money, how much profit there was from last year's Halloween? How much money was made? Two billion. Nope. More. Seven billion. More. Fifty billion. That's that's a little high. So. Uh, What's 50, for all the kids in here, what's 50 billion divided by five? Million or billion? Billion. Billion. What's 50 billion divided by five? 10 billion. $10 billion was profited last year during Halloween. And so what I want to do is I want to look at October 31st, 1517, some of the events that led to that, and um, some of the history of Halloween. This won't be an exhaustive study because some of it's folk history, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty long study when you study the, the roots of uh, Halloween. And so what I'd like for us to do is, I didn't give Jim the word, so there's no fault to Jim. Uh, I didn't give Jim the scripture ahead of time. But I would like for um, someone, I'd like, I need three volunteers. To, they're going to read some scripture. Adele. Would you read Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17? We're, we're going to stand with you in a minute, and we're going to honor the reading of God's word. Next volunteer. 
Alexa, I want you to read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And who else wants to be bold? Alex, I'm going to have you read 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Okay, once you guys get there, stand. And as they read loud, we're going we're gonna to stand and honor the reading of God's word. <clears throat> and we'll go in the order I asked you to read. Nope, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And if you guys have your physical Bibles, which I hope you do, uh, stand up and, and get to Romans 1. You can flip over to Ephesians 2. You can flip a little further to 2 Timothy 3. And um, encourage you guys, um, man, make it, a, make it a regular practice. It's real easy to click on your app and they'll tell you which chapter and verse, boom, boom, boom. It's really good to know how to navigate the 66 books in the Bible. And it actually feels good, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel good just to have this in your hand? I think it does. Maybe I'm weird. But um, Adele, you ready? Yep. All right, we'll follow along with you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Next, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is the of grace and the grace of God. Not the result of works, that no one may boast. Amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, please. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And actually, <clears throat> I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Or if somebody else wants to flip there real quick, thinks they can beat me there. <clears throat> Anybody want to race? There you go. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this uh, time and space that you've chosen us to be at. We pray, Lord, that this wouldn't just be some religious exercise where we show up in a room and sing a couple songs and, and um, you know, greet our neighbors and then listen to a message and then leave. But we pray this would be a divine moment where you would encounter us and you would change us uh, through your word and through the testimony of uh, a faithful brother and um, many saints who have gone before us, Lord, so that we could have the privilege and freedom to be here today. So I pray, God, you would stir something special in our hearts that would go way beyond this, this time and would uh, reverberate all throughout human history. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. <clears throat> so we talked a little bit about this on Wednesday, if you were with us on Wednesday night. But I'm going to give you guys a little brief history of Martin Luther, the man. And I'm also going to um, tie in the five solas that Carl mentioned earlier. <clears throat> so... Early, the early uh, 16th century, there was a, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther was born in Eiselben, Germany. Uh, Martin Luther was um, a man who, um, oh, you put my, all my notes up there. Man, I got a hold of my notes now. All right. Uh, did, you, did you do all my notes or just the, uh, okay. All right. I was hoping you would just do the stuff that was underlined, but that's okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. So 
All right. So um, you can read up there or I'll explain some of these things. But um, Martin Luther was raised uh, the son of a miner. And his father, his family was not affluent growing up. And they gained some, a little bit of affluency, uh, a little bit of esteem. And Martin Luther's father goal for his son that he would go, because Martin Luther was very educated, he was very quick-witted, that he would go on to be a lawyer. So Martin Luther was attending a law school and he was at the top of his class. And one day on horseback, Martin Luther was traveling and he encountered a lightning storm, a great lightning storm with ferocious lightning that he honestly thought he was going to die. Anybody ever been in a lightning storm like that? Jim has. I remember one time we went camping in Uwari and um, actually I was with Dylan. He's not in here. Um, and one of our friends was being baptized and it was, we were in a tent and it was raining hard and there was lightning everywhere. And it was, it was about the closest I've ever come to this. So Martin Luther was in this moment where he thought he was going to die. And he said, he cried out to the Saint Anne. And he said, oh, Father, in the name of Saint Anne, if you preserve my life, I will go on to serve you as a monk. And God spared his life. And he went on to join the Augustinian monks, the order of the Augustinian monk. And these particular monks um, were some of the highest um, order of monks that you could be. Their job was to learn the scriptures and their job was to go and minister to the priests of the parish. And so they were an equipping monk. They were, they were very highly sought after, very theologically astute. And so as Martin Luther joined this at the uh, dismay of his father, who was hoping he'd be a lawyer, uh, God used his mind and his, his, his beautiful, uh, in-depth, uh, thorough analysis of things, which would have made him a great lawyer, and started to make him a great monk in so much that um, he started studying the scripture, very, very, very fine-tooth combing the scripture. Um, and there's a couple of things the Catholic Church was doing at that time that didn't line up with what Martin was reading in the scripture. And a couple of those things where the Catholic Church believes that they would bring the mass, the uh, what we call Lord's Supper, they'd bring the elements to the people, and the Catholic priests were actually physically, in that moment, bringing the presence of God. So, so we look at um, the bread and the juice as a symbol of what Jesus has done for us and as a symbol uh, that he's coming back. And the Catholic Church actually believed that when they brought the bread and they brought the wine, they were bringing the presence of God. And so first off, Martin Luther's like, he didn't see that in Scripture, but the one thing he saw in Scripture that he was an unworthy sinner to be in the presence of God and how dare he, a man who might have sinned right before the Mass, now he's unholy to, to even bring the presence of God to his people. And he started confessing that to his other monks, and they kind of just said, hey, chill out, dude. You're like, you're a little too zealous. Like, everything, you're, you're doing a good job, man. Just, just keep it up. Don't worry about that. And he's like, he was probably more holy than his other monks, and yet he was the only one that was concerned about this practice. And that was discouraging to him. Another thing that was super discouraging to him was they were selling indulgences and the Catholic Church believes in a thing called purgatory. And purgatory was a place where uh, your soul would go to this intermediate place. Upon death, you'd go to purgatory and um, purgatory is a place where you'd be purged from your sins so that you could enter into heaven. And so 
Martin Luther is searching the scripture and he's, he's not seeing that. But what the Catholic Church was doing at that time was they were selling indulgences that would uh, take away people's sins in purgatory so that they could get to heaven. So the practice before the selling of indulgences was that you would do good works on behalf of your neighbor, your, your, your loved one who was in purgatory, and your good works would earn them their own salvation. Right? It sounds crazy. It sounds very foreign to us because one is it's not true, and we just don't see people doing that these days, uh, at least um, you know, directly doing that. Um, and so he's reading the scriptures, and he's saying, man, this is an ungodly practice. He's unworthy to bring the presence of God to people. It's an unworthy practice. It's ungodly that God, uh, God's people would, would charge people money uh, to earn their loved one's salvation. And you can imagine the devastating effects. It, if you're rich, right? No big deal, right? Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for, for my loved one. And now because of my money, my loved one's in heaven. But where it particularly struck Martin Luther is he saw poor families. He saw poor families who had nothing. They barely had bread to put on the table and they were selling everything they had to intercede for their loved one who died, going further and further into debt. And so um, he's, he's trying to reconcile this all the while he wants to serve the Lord because the Lord spared his life. But it wasn't until he took a trip to Rome where Martin Luther was directly in the face of this practice being done by the Holy Roman Catholic Church in Rome. People would make pilgrimages to Rome to experience and understand God, to be in His presence through the Mass or through worship. And he saw not just a couple people, but he saw the entire system, basically the entire Roman Catholic Church and its leaders taking advantage of the people who are coming to be in the presence of God. And he's stirred up, man. He's getting angry. He's not sure what to do with it. But it wasn't until he was studying Romans chapter 1, which Adele read earlier, and I'll read it again. He read this scripture, and it truly was the the pivotal scripture which for him unlocked what we would now be grateful for as Protestants. We would now be grateful for the unlocking of this in Martin Luther's mind. It was scripture. So he says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. What is the power of God for salvation? The gospel. To who? Everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So everyone can be included in this plan of salvation if they believe. But this is the, the, the true scripture that like rocked his world and now has rocked our whole world. Verse 17 says, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's say that together. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so as he read the scripture, he, he discovered, and we, we need to rediscover, that really the five solas are all wrapped up in these two verses because he learned it through the scripture, it was for God's glory, but that you were saved by grace through faith. So you became righteous by what? By faith. You became righteous by faith, and then the righteous shall live by faith. 
not by indulgences, not by the giving of their time, talents, or treasure, although we should do those things. And so he read this and he said, wait, if a person's declared righteous, a person receives salvation by believing, not by purgatory, not by good works, not by indulgence, not by this system, but by faith. And so it's important to note, and if you go to Europe, anybody ever been to Europe and looked at some of the, the great Catholic cathedrals? They're amazing. And it's, it's kind of bittersweet because you can go in this, this place and see just you know, 300 foot tall ceilings and, and beautiful stained glass and you know, some of the best acoustics known to that time in these buildings. And you can look and you can see, actually, if you go on the outside, you can see the different colors in stone as they change. And you'll see that in 1400, the church was this tall. And then in 1500, another 50 feet was added. And the church would grow and grow. The building would grow and grow and grow. And you have to ask yourself, well, how did it grow? How did this church building grow? It grew because of a, a system of extortion. The Catholic Church was extorting common people who didn't have the scripture in their language to understand what Martin the monk understood in this, that I am not going to be saved by giving of indulgences, which are going to go to build this building. I'm going to be saved by God revealing through his grace that I'm saved by faith alone. And so I want to highlight a couple of things. I'm not sure if Jim put my entire notes in here, but maybe he did. Okay, so sola scriptura. Um, see, the problem is if you put it up there, you'll read it. Yeah, just don't. don't even, just put the first slide of Martin. So, sola scriptura. So, scripture alone. So, what was Martin's main source of understanding? It was scripture. Everything lined up or didn't line up with scripture. Scripture was the framework in which he viewed all of God's working in this earth. 2 Timothy 3.16, as we read earlier, says this about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by who? By God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now listen, there are some traditions in the church which are good. There's some traditions that, that accompany the church. For instance, we have traditions at Convergence. Um, some of our tr traditions are, historically, we meet in each other's homes. And we have what we call Great Commission Groups, where three to five families gather every week over a meal. We share scripture together. We, we encourage each other. That's, that's, not a, um, that's not a command in scripture to do that, but it's a tradition that as we looked at scripture, we thought was a good, good thing that we ought to do. And it's our normal tradition that we'll more than likely be getting back to relatively soon. We have a tradition called discipleship groups where, where those same men and women of those great commission groups meet every other week. And it's a custom. It's, a, it's every other week practice where the three to five uh, men and women or men of the, the discipleship group, the women of their discipleship group, they will search the scriptures together. They'll ask hard questions. Right. These, this, this is a church tradition. It's a convergence church, church tradition. Even our liturgy, the way we're set up. 
we sing roughly two to three songs. We, we say a prayer. There's a call to worship. There's a time in the word. There'll be a response through the Lord's Supper. And then there's some announcements. And we, and we go home. Uh, what's another convergence tradi- church tradition that you're aware of? We, every year we do a family retreat. We go on a camp out. Okay. What else? There's a ladies retreat. There's fellowship meals, men's retreat, baby dedications. Well, that so I would say baptism is a command. That's not a, that's not a us tradition. It's a rhythm, but you're right. It, it, so so some of these things we 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 search the scripture and we say, hey, it's good for the men to get away and take two to three days. Hey, it's good for the women to get away. Hey, it's good for our church to get away. These are traditions in our church that aren't necessarily explicitly commanded in scripture. <clears throat> so I want, to, I want us to not think that every church tradition is bad. Is it bad that they built church buildings? That's not a bad thing, right? Some way, sometimes I wish we had, we had a church building. Um, that, that's, so there's another tradition of ours. We're a church plant. I don't know if we'll ever get out of the pot. But you know what I mean? But the good thing about a church plant in the pot, you can move it different places. We've, that's maybe a tradition of ours. We've moved around a lot. <clears throat> but, but, but these are things that are good, and these are things that we hold loosely. Even this year, we took a break from the Great Commission groups. What was the tradition we impl- implemented this year? Yeah, so every Wednesday, we, we primarily be going to parks. And by God's grace, we were able to hand out seven, 800 Bibles this year. That's a new tradition. It's a good tradition. We'll probably keep elements of that moving forward uh, this Tuesday night. Everyone's invited to my neighborhood. Um, people can feel free to dress up and go get candy in my neighborhood. Or some can stay, and we're going to hand out Bibles. And everyone's invited. And that might be a good tradition. That's actually something we did um, the very first year. You guys remember, we had a Reformation party at my house back in 2017. And so these are, these are good things, which we can deduct from Scripture. But the... Or actually, I'll ask the question, when does a tradition become a bad tradition? When it goes against God. So I would say every tradition, everything we do, we need to look at Scripture and say, is what we're doing lining up with Scripture? Yes or no? And if what you're doing is, as a church doesn't line up with Scripture, then you need to repent and stop right away. But also, I would say traditions can become bad when, they, when you do them for tradition's sake. If we just do stuff, because that's always the way we've done it, right? That's sort of the problem um, with a lot of the modern-day church. Um, the church historically did things one way from 1950 to 2000, and that way worked. You just, you know, the holy hour from 11 to 12, you, you had your set liturgy, did your... Uh, altar call, people came to Christ, and everybody went home, and you did it again next Sunday. And, you know, that's, that's not a great model for, for many of the Gen Z, Gen Xers. They're not interested in attending that, you know? And so traditions can be good. Good traditions that were rooted in, in, and deduced from Scripture can be good, can become bad if you're doing them for tradition's sake. So we need to always be reevaluating, but we always need to be reevaluating through the scriptures. And so in this church, we have a reading plan. 
Anybody know what that reading plan's called? Seeing Jesus together. It used to be called what? CBR. Rebecca, a couple weeks ago, said CBD. <laughs> it's like, it's not CBD, but it's the CBR, Community Bible Reading, Seeing Jesus Together. It's our, it's our regular plan. We've been doing it for about three years now. I think that's a good tradition. Anybody, anybody else like thankful for the Seeing Jesus Together? My family, Alexa. Uh, so hopefully everyone's doing it. I'll just tell you. It's not a law, like you won't be in sin if you're not reading the plan with us, but, but I would say, I would just ask the question, why not? You know, why not? Why wouldn't you read it with us? Like we have a plan, we're all reading it together. It's one New Testament, it's one Old Testament. It's very achievable. It's not like 10 chapters a day where you're just checking a box, like you're actually reading it. I would encourage us as an application point of sola scriptura is that we need to have a regular practice of thoughtful engagement with the Bible, keyword thoughtful. Like anything you do should never become a religious exercise or just activity to check a box. And I got to confess that even the SJT can be that for me at times. I, I play it on my phone every morning before I leave the bed. And sometimes five minutes later, I'm like, what the heck did I just read? I wasn't even paying attention. So I have to go back and read it. That's why I like SJT because it's, it's roughly about eight to 10 minutes of audio. And um, we talk about it as a family. We talk about it in our missional communities. We talk about it as a church. But I want to encourage us as an application of sola scriptura, the way we keep that alive, is to prioritize regular and thoughtful engagement with your Bible. Seek to understand and apply the teachings in your daily life. Allow scriptures to shape your belief and actions. So, Luther's epiphany in his journey, in his pilgrimage to Rome, he was seeing that people were being swindled, that there was another way that they could earn salvation. It wasn't by faith alone, it was through works. Does anyone know the scripture in James about faith and works? I'm going to recite it. Paraphrase it. Faith without works is dead. Okay? So what a lot of people will do is they will look at their works as a means to earn their salvation. And James wasn't saying that. Moses wasn't saying that. He was talking about Abraham. Paul wasn't talking about that. He's referred back to this, this question. But Jesus gives a really clear answer on what a person with faith looks like. He says, you will know a tree by their fruit. So if you, if you claim to have faith, but you don't have works, he said that's actually a dead faith, and a dead faith is no faith at all. Amen? So, what Luther saw was people working, paying, trying to earn to get their faith, or, or in some cases to get the faith of other people. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which Alexa read earlier, says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the work of God. The work of who? God. Verse 9. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now let me be honest with you. 
This is really, 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 really great news. You couldn't earn your salvation, which is good news, because if you can't earn it, the flip side is that is if I didn't do anything to earn it, then I can't do anything to lose it. And let me be honest with you. If you could earn it, you would lose it. And if you could earn it, you would boast. <laughs> uh, I was actually talking to Andrew Wood on um, Wednesday night. Everybody came over for missional community. And I just got back from two weeks in Florida where we had a lot of training with Love Life and the mission of Love Life is we help save babies and we help save souls. And um, Andrew said, hey, how was your past two weeks? And I said, oh, man, you know, just saving babies and saving souls. And we kind of joked and laughed, you know, and, and the next day um, it hit me. I was like, how arrogant are you, man? Like, you didn't do it. You didn't do any of that. I didn't, I didn't save souls. I didn't save babies. God did. And I'm just telling you, like, it was subtle. I don't think I really meant it. It was kind of like just joking around, like, like, what you've been up to? Oh, you know, just saving souls and saving lives, you know? Like, what's better than that? And the reality was, I didn't save anybody. I didn't save any lives. I didn't save any souls, but God did. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you need to be reminded, you didn't do anything to save your eternal life. God did. And, and you believe that by faith alone. You believe in the finished work of Jesus. So the gospel which Paul referred back to in Romans chapter one, says that you were a sinner estranged from your heavenly father. You committed the most blasphemous thing you could ever in front of a holy God. You rejected him. You disobeyed him because you're a sinner and you deserved his wrath. You deserved his judgment. You deserve the penalty for your sin. But Jesus Christ, the son of God, fully God and fully human came stepped into history 2,000 years ago to die on a cross for your sin, to accomplish what you could not, to die in your place. And he went to the grave and died for your sin. He put your sin to death. And then he rose three days later victorious in the grave. He triumphed over sin and shame. He triumphed over your wretched condition. And by grace through faith, when you believed in him, he declared you righteous. He did it. He died for you. He caused you to believe. He declared you righteous and he's going to keep you. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, this is great news. It's great news. You need to be reminded this today, that you were saved through your faith alone. That's the, that's, that's the one thing you had. And, and God gave it to you, was faith. Understand that salvation is a gift from God, not earned through your efforts. So this brings, brings a great sense of freedom and assurance for your faith, trusting in Christ's work for your justification, not your own. And why is that good? Because you will fall short. Maybe even right now you're like, okay, dude, I've heard this sermon a thousand times. I'm ready to go get some chicken wings from Chex. Hey, you know what? I want to get some chicken wings from Chex too. You're going to fall short. You're going to slip up. You're going to think wrong things. You're going to say wrong things. 
And that's good news because God's not looking at you saying, hey man, you didn't, you didn't do enough to keep it. You didn't perform. He says, I performed perfectly on your behalf. I died in your place for your sin. And you are free through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your justification. So, <clears throat> Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Luther's teachings began to resonate among a people who were weary, the burdens and demands of the church. Imagine a never-ending slave master hitting you on the back every day, and no matter what you do, it's just not enough, even to the point where the most detrimental thing in your life, your loved ones and their souls depended on what you did and what you gave. And you didn't have to give. That's a hard place to be. We don't, we don't even understand that because we don't live in that. And so when, when, when Luther offered this, this uh, thought of grace alone, grace being a gift, grace is a gift God gives you. It's freely given. It's unearned, it's undeserved. The very notion that God's favor could not be bought but was freely given reverberated all throughout Germany and it should reverberate to us today. And the reality is you can tell a person who has been given grace by those who give grace. If you see someone who's, you know, their life is marked by harshness and, and um, uncharitableness towards others, you, you have to go back to that teaching of Jesus when he said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. If someone just consistently lacks grace, now I'm not saying you don't have a moment. I had a moment the other day where I raised my voice at Lucas and Moses and they didn't deserve that. And I used it as a moment to get their attention or so I justified myself. But really I was just angry that they weren't listening at the first time. And it brought me back to the way I raised my older sons. I was like, man, I, I was consistently that guy, but by God's grace, he's kind of lanced off some of the the harshness, I become gentler, right? Why? Because I'm filled with the Spirit. God's grace is, is more apparent in my life than it used to be. I praise God for that. There, there, you'll still have moments where you're ungracious, but the, the pattern of a Christian is someone who's being conformed to the image of Jesus who is full of grace. You'll, you'll be less harsh. And so, like, I see stuff online. Man, one of the most, like, controversial things I ever did this week, we just share a real, kind of brief teaching on this um, and just let Christians know, like, I don't think we should celebrate evil. If you do, hey, that's on you. Like, I'm not, not putting my standard on you. I don't think God wants us all to, you know, dress up like satanic demons and worship things on Halloween, whether we believe it or not. But I, I do think that we can go trick-or-treating in our neighborhoods, and I do think we can come to my house and set up a table that says free Bibles, free cider, Give out the best candy bars. Hopefully you guys come over. Like, don't bring the skimpy things. Go get the full candy bars. Like, I want my house to be known as the house. Man, they give out the good candy. And I put this online, and many people resonated and said, hey, thank you for sharing it. It was, it was shared. It was, it was viewed a lot. There was a lot of comments. And there was someone on there like, completely rebuked me. They said, man, I don't know what Bible reading or what church you, you belong to, but it's completely unbiblical. There's no such day that belongs to God. We, can't, we don't celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Valentine's. We don't celebrate every holiday. I'm like, whoa, that's so foreign to me. 
That's so foreign to me that Christians wouldn't... Now, I get it. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But, man, we can't take a season. Like, we celebrate Jesus every day, but we can't take a season and honor Jesus as king. We can't sing Christmas carols like we've done at Sailboat Bay because you don't believe he was born December 25th? Like, that's a harsh view. That's a harsh way to live. Like, if, if, if Christians can't be known as gracious, celebratory people, man, did Jesus really come to die for us? Like, what do we have to be happy about? Like, do you celebrate your own birthday? And so I don't want to go on a big tangent on that, but it's like, man, there are quote-unquote Christians who just act super harsh, you know, legalistic. And, you know, at worst, these people are part of a cult, or at best, they're part of a man-centered tradition that they need to repent of. And listen, you can disagree with me and say, hey, our family, our family's going to turn out the light. We're not going to put candy out. And that's what we believe. And I wouldn't say you're wrong for that. I mean, I would say my family will, won't respond that way. But where the grace comes in is how do we respond to others? Are we, are we lobbering grenades? Last week, uh, I'm listening to the sermon. And Carl basically said, anybody that doesn't believe we land on the moon is like a tinfoil hat weirdo. And I'm like, where's my tinfoil hat? So I don't think we did. I'm not convinced. I'm not, I'm not willing to say 100% I don't believe, but I'm not convinced. Because if so, why haven't we been back? <laughs> Anyways, um, but here's the thing. I didn't, I didn't dismiss Carl and say, he's, man, he's an unbiblical Christian. Who's what I was like, bro, like we disagree on some things. Like I'm going to show charity to you because I've been saved by grace. I'm learning. Maybe, maybe I'll be able to convince Carl and, you know, that we didn't. Or maybe he'll be able to convince me. Uh, I shared the story from the pulpit. Yeah. It's fun. Hey, you brought it up from this pulpit. No, um, I remember, uh, I'll never forget, one of my fondest memories of Carl was back when I had the office at the Benham Brothers uh, office. Um, there's that scripture where it says, the sun stood still in Joshua. And I remember talking to Carl and I was like, I didn't say I didn't believe that, but I was like, I think there's allowances for like, maybe scientifically there was something that happened and he was speaking metaphorically and Carl was like, dude, if the Bible says it, it's true. And I was like, you're right, man. Like the sun stood still. Like maybe I don't, I don't have to know all the, the, the scientific reasoning behind it, but if God said it's true, like what's crazier to believe the sun stood still or God would send a savior in a human history to die for sinners? Like the second one, you know? And, but I remember Carl, I didn't feel unloved. I didn't feel like dismissed. He didn't react harshly to me. He just responded in, in, in love for his brother. And so the way that we apply solo gratia, grace alone to our life, is we show grace to others. And not just those in the church. It better start with those in the church. But we, we show grace to our non-believing neighbors who are throwing up the weird, wacky, demonic, inflatable thing and all that. Like in my neighborhood, there's a, I should have put a picture of it. There's a 10-foot-tall skeleton. There's all these other skeletons bowing down, worshiping, worshiping him. And, you know, you may say, hey, that's cool. Like, honestly, my kids look at it. It's like, it looks cool, but like, Logically, it's like, what does it represent? 
And the question I asked was like, if, if that showed up in your living room at 2 a.m., would you be like, oh, that's cool, or would you run and say, what the heck's going on? But yet, but every time I drive past it, I have to be subjected to it. But I'm going to show grace to that neighbor, man. If he was here today, I'd tell him, hey, I disagree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in my lawn. But I'm not going to condemn him. I'm not going to, you know, talk bad about him online, even though I kind of did in that video, sort of, indirectly. I just did now. He's, he's not watching, but if he was, like, come to Jesus. But <clears throat> we show grace to others. That's the principle of, of grace alone. We've been saved by grace alone. It was a gift to us. And our gift to others is we show grace. With unwavering conviction, Luther declared that Christ alone was the mediator between God and humanity. It wasn't a priest. It wasn't a pope. It wasn't you. So solos Christus, Christ alone, became the cornerstone of his message. It was through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection that sinners found redemption and reconciliation with God. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. If Jesus didn't come to die in your place and then be resurrected from the dead, we have no faith. It's all purposeless. It's a meaningless existence. And only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could die in your place. Only Jesus could die and raise him from the dead. So how do we do that? We exalt Jesus in our lives. We keep Jesus at the center of our faith and our life. We seek a personal relationship with him through prayer, meditating on his teaching and following his example and our interactions with others. You could take out the four Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You could take those four books out of the Bible and still be a Christian who's saved and, and been given by the Apostle Paul many meaningful teachings through the New Testament, uh, Jude and James and, and John and all these guys. You don't need those four books to be a Christian, but those four books really help you be a Christian. Jesus didn't have to come and live perfectly and walk with people for three years and have all these miraculous stories, but he did. And there's something powerful about the red letters of Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation. Like when Jesus speaks, like at the transfiguration, which we'll have in a couple um, weeks, the Father said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And so I'm not putting the teachings of Jesus above the teachings of the Holy Spirit through Peter, Moses, or any of the other uh, scribes, but I'm telling you, man, like we can learn a lot from just studying Jesus. And that's why it's been so cool to go through Luke. Every week, man, we get to talk about Jesus directly. You know what I mean? So I want to encourage you guys, the way you exalt Jesus is keeping him at the center of your life. Funneling yourself, you know, there's, um, I think someone in here had one on, the WWJD. Somebody wearing one of those in here? The WWJD bracelet. Could have swore I saw someone. Maybe it was yesterday. We were hanging with someone. But, you know, asking yourself, like, how, what would Jesus do in this moment? You guys think Jesus would, uh, what do you think Jesus would do on Tuesday? This coming Tuesday? Only, there's only right answers. So he would, he would put himself... Around non-believers? Okay. He would speak truth. Okay. Everything he said was true. He would spend time with his father. Okay. What else? What would Jesus do this Tuesday? This upcoming Tuesday is Halloween. 
What would Jesus, do you think Jesus do? He would love? Love what? Candy? People. He loved people? Do you think he'd eat candy with people? What candy would he eat? Something with honey? Do they make candy? A bit of honey? Um, he'd give the best candy. He'd make the best candy. So, so you're saying, if we look at Jesus' life, maybe we should give out free wine this Tuesday? The best wine? Maybe not. But we'll give the best candy bars. Let's give the best candy. Let's give out the word. Let's be present. Like this is what we've been doing in the park every week. And so for us, it's not like some big event. We have to like figure out some super strategy. We just looked at what Jesus did. He was present with people. He brought the word. He always spoke the truth. He loved them. He loved people, whether they were his disciples or not. Did Jesus, Jesus love Judas? Man, Jesus loved Judas. Did Judas love Jesus? Not really. He turned on him, you know. Jesus loved him anyways. Jesus is called to love those, maybe even those who despise us. So let's do that. Let's do that this Tuesday. Let's do that every day. The last sola is soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. As the Reformation gained momentum, Luther's fervor for soli deo gloria intensified. I'm sure that people started to make much of Luther. I mean, he had a pretty cool haircut, if you can't see there. No. So Luther had the, uh, so Lucas said he wanted to be Luther for Halloween. And Josh said, cool, we'll shave your head like Luther. So Luther had like the crown of hair, kind of like Pastor Carl. <laughs> Sorry. No, it was the, they, had, they had the hair on the, around the sides, but the top was shaved. When, that was part of the Augustinian monk hairdo, apparently the barbershop there. Um, but... He eventually, uh, we, we learned that he grew a beard, he grew long hair, uh, he ended up getting married, right? Um, so you, I don't know what you're going to dress like. You can basically wear whatever you want, maybe just a hammer and a cloak. Are we going to shave his head? No, mom says no. We're not going to shave his, a wig? Okay, bald wig? Okay. But, um, but I'm pretty sure that as Luther spread this message, the people couldn't help but want to be around him and to exalt him, right? Because he was this great bringer of freedom. He helped liberate the church. <clears throat> and Luther emphasized over and over and over that it was all God that did this. If you didn't know, Luther, uh, he, he understood Latin. At the time, the Bible was all written in Latin. And when, when Luther went and, and nailed the 95 theses on the door of that church, it was written in Latin. Why is that important? Because Luther wasn't seeking to start a reformation. Luther wasn't seeking to start a revolution. He wasn't seeking to change the world. Luther just wanted the church to repent. And so he wrote in Latin to Latin people. And it was God that took this message and through four uh, translators and printers, he distributed the message in German all across Germany. And that's what started it. Luther didn't ask for this. 
This wasn't his plan. He just read the scriptures and he saw the church and he said, man, <clears throat> I want to see this church come back to God. He cared about God. He cared about God's glory. And God used him in his humility in that moment to bring a reformation that we are still grateful for today. And this happens with us all the time, right? I mean, I'm not, this isn't about me, but like prior to 2010, I was a very self-centered individual who only cared about myself. And one of my testimonies that I share with people is like my family. I show when I go places and talk about love life, or I'll, I'll very often bring up a picture of my family and I'm very proud of my family. You know, we don't use wallets and pictures anymore, but we have our phones. We say, hey, here's my family. And I, I start sharing about what my kids are doing. And they're like, wow, you, you must be a great dad. And your wife's a great, great, great mom. And I have to remind them that, man, we serve a great God. Because God radically changed my heart. This is not something I desire to do. I would never want to be here with you guys prior to 2010. I probably wouldn't be going to bed till right around now from the night before. Like I had no business with the church or being with God. But God in his kindness saved me. And he's given us a family. Like physically and spiritually. And anything good in my life that I have to boast in, it's because of him. And so why, why then would I try to receive glory for that? And so I want to encourage us as we think about Soli Dea Gloria, as we think about the glory of God alone, is there will be times in your life where, it, again, now there's a responsibility. Like, don't, don't just take your hands off the wheel and be like, I'm just going to let Jesus drive my family. Like, you've got to wake up and you've got to be intentional and you've got to be present. And you've got to pursue things. But it's ultimately God who gets the glory when things go well. And it's really God who gets the glory when things don't go well. Because sometimes you have to fail and struggle and lose things where you can truly find your purpose or find the thing that you're looking for. And so God gets the glory in your struggle. God gets the glory in your success, your career, your relationships, your personal goals. You want to seek to honor the Lord. And if your goal is to honor the Lord, you'll never fail. If your goal is to honor you, I hope that you fail. If, if the reason, you know, you want to do something is because you want to do something, I hope you fail. But the reason, if the reason is you want to do something is because you want to honor God, you'll never fail. Nobody can ever, whether it's gymnastics or the military or being a homeschool mom or author and writer, a speaker, a hairdresser, like whatever your thing is, if, if it is, if the starting place is I want to bring glory to God, you will never fail. Even if that thing doesn't succeed, you will never fail because your starting place was in the right place. So you need to align your ambitions and your pursuits with the glory of God. Amen? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Solidea Gloria is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You can eat to the glory of God. So I want to share the end of Luther's story, and I encourage everyone to watch the Luther documentary I shared in Group Me. Um, but after several years of Luther being deemed a heretic because he went against the Catholic Church, they brought him to this thing called the Diet of Worms, where he was going to face the powerful Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, which is this meeting where they, they wanted to call him to recant 
all of his teachings that had just been so detrimental. Many says, oh man, you're, you're such a bad guy, Luther. You brought division in the church. You need to recant and you need to say that your teachings were wrong. And in this defining moment, which encapsulated the unwavering commitment of the five solas, he said this. He said, well, actually, before he said it, actually, this is important to know too. So they went to Luther. They brought all his teachings out. They said, recant of all your teachings. You know what Luther did next? Somebody remembered? Did he speak? He said, give me, give me a day. Now, he... Like we knew he wasn't going to recant because Luther's bold. But he said, give me a day. And what did he do in that day? You remember? He prayed and he asked the Lord, Lord, am I wrong? Lord, am, 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 I, am I doing something wrong? Am I, am I reading this wrong? Like even in that moment where he was already all in, had been ostracized. Him going to the Diet of Worms could have cost him his life. That, that's what they did to people back then. hundred years prior to Martin Luther, John Huss was burned alive at the stake for this very thing, trying to translate God's word to the common folk. And Luther was bringing the teaching of God to the common people in their language, and they're telling him, you need to recant of all this. He takes about 24 hours and he goes to his study, and he doesn't just say, what am I going to say? He asked the Lord, Lord, am I wrong? And where does he get his confirmation from? He goes back to the word. And then he reminded himself, everything he was standing on wasn't his opinion. It wasn't his, based on his feelings. Like his whole teaching was based upon the word of God. And then he goes to them. And he says, here I stand. I can do no other. Because he stood on the word of God. Making a declaration that the truth of the gospel, grounded in the scripture, justified by faith through grace in Christ alone and for the glory of God alone, was non-negotiable. And so that's how we need to live. And I'm going to give you guys a couple of things to consider and ponder how you might bring the Reformation in your life in an ongoing manner. The first is we need to be advocates for accessible scriptures. It's something we don't talk about a lot. But there's people all across the world right now where this book is illegal. And we need to be advocating for ministries that are not only taking the word and putting it in their language, but are using devices. They're using all kinds of manners and methods to transmit the word of God to people. We need to be advocating that people anywhere, all time, can experience the revelatory word of God. Amen? The second thing is we need to be engaging in responsible activism. Christianity is activism. You say, I'm not an activist. Well, if you're, if you're living like the world in the world, you're not because you're just going with the flow. But the minute you become a Christian, you're now swimming upstream and you're active against the things that are downstream, whether you like it or not. 
That's what Jesus did. He didn't come in 2,000 years ago and say, man, everything's great here. No, he stood firmly in who God is to the point of death. And Martin Luther did the same thing. Martin Luther could have very easily lost his life, just like those before and those after him. And so we need to be engaging in responsible activism, like Luther being willing to stand up for truth and justice in our society. In a couple of weeks, we'll have an opportunity as a church to go to Week 40 Love Life Prayer Walk. We'll be advocating for the preborn. This is a, this is a responsibility of the church. If you didn't know the history of the church, in the first century, they would take children that were less than, those that had deformities and conditions, and they would throw them in the trash heap of the city. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, the culture. The culture did that. And it was the church that would go to the trash heap and rescue those children. And they would take them in, they would adopt them, they would make them their own. That's, there's, there's history, there's chronicled history of that in the first century. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those being led away to the slaughter. We have a responsibility to, to stand for our pre-born neighbors. But it goes beyond abortion, right? What are some other injustices we see in society today? Slavery. Many people, I think they said slavery is higher now than it's ever been. There's more people percentage-wise and number-wise across the world that are sold into sex slavery. And we need to be advocating for that. We need to be praying for that. We need to be speaking up against that. What are some other injustices in our society? Persecution of Christians. Terrorism, drugs, sin. Like, what about the church? Like, when we see someone struggling in our church, we need to be advocating responsibly for them. The list, I mean, this is a long list here. We need to be engaging in these things, like Luther, promoting equity, compassion with integrity. We need to cultivate a discerning spirit. Just like Luther, we need to be searching the scriptures. We need to be Bereans. We need to know what God says. Don't ever take what Pastor Carl, myself, or anyone else up here says and just say, hey, that's, that's, that's 100% true. That's why we encourage you guys to read your Bibles. We want you to contribute to the life of this church by giving us the truth of God's Word, discerning what this thing actually says. And there will be times where we disagree. What was that? Awesome. Someone's watching. I didn't know someone's watching. You know, new follower on Facebook, Pastor Carl. But we cultivate a discerning spirit. You cannot cultivate a discerning spirit apart from knowing this. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this. I think every Christian should be a critical Christian. But I don't think any Christian should be an overcritical Christian. Like we should be discerning but discerning with grace and making allowances for people who aren't where we are spiritually, theologically, to come with us, or maybe we need to come and learn from them. Like our culture is very dismissive and canceling. We need to buck hard against that canceling spirit. It's demonic. 
We need to foster unity among this diversity. Convergence churches, we have a variety of people with beliefs in this room. Calvinists, Arminians, five-pointers, zero-pointers, maybe 15-pointers, whatever. People that believe in uh, the gifts of the Spirit and those who don't or have different views about these things. End times, you know, Israel. There's a lot of different diversity within the body of Christ. We need to make allowances to show grace, to build bridges and foster unity among believers from various backgrounds in this church and those outside this church. We also need to be courageous in our faith, like Luther being willing to stand firm in our faith, even when it may be unpopular or challenging. Um, our culture says there's, there's more than two genders. And I want to encourage us biblically that there's only there's there's basically two sexes, male and female. That's it. If you want to attach gender to that word, that's fine. But gender is a social construct, which they say there's infinite genders now. Apparently, like we need to be willing to stand up and say what God says. It might cost us our job. It might cost us our livelihood. So be it. We need to say unpopular things and be courageous in our faith. Trusting in God's sovereignty and His ability to use your obedience for His glory. We need to cultivate a heart of gratitude, remembering that our faith, our salvation, and every blessing in our life is from God. Everyone. Cultivating a heart of gratitude that overflows into acts of worship and service. We need to be looking for opportunities to serve others because God has served us. And lastly, we need to promote biblical literacy. Like we shouldn't be okay as a church. And I don't ever want to, like I've been in my heart kind of dogmatic about this, but like hear me on this. If you're in this church and you don't read your Bible, like you're malnourished and it's your own doing. Like, like we should be biblically literate. Like dad should be leading their homes. Moms should be leading their kids. Brothers should be encouraging their brothers. This isn't like condemning, right? Because we all have room to grow. But man, if, if we make like, if we were asked, if I was asked the question, like, how's your time in your word? And your response was anything other than, man, I'm in it daily. I'm, I'm trying to interpret. I'm trying to understand. Then, then I just would say you're wrong. Like you're in the wrong. That's not me being a meanie or a legalist, but it's like, how are you going to grow in the knowledge of God? How are you going to understand the benefits of His grace apart from His Word? Like, people died for this. Martin Luther was willing to die for this. John Huss and many others died for this. People across the world are dying for this today. And yet we just flippantly will make time for fill in the blank. And it's really just kind of, I, I believe it's just like... For a Christian who doesn't read his Bible, it's for me, it's almost like the ultimate act of treason. It's like, hey, <clears throat> I love God, but I don't need him. I love my wife, man, but I'm never going to spend time with her. It's like, really? You love your wife and you never see her? You know? And so <laughs> you can be mad at me, but if you don't read your Bible, I'm going to call you to repent. And not just read it to, to check a box, but like to spend time with God. 
praying about what you're reading. God, man, you, you said your word's sufficient. Help me appreciate and understand your sufficiency. How do I apply this to my life? One way you can do this, if, you, if you're struggling, um, you can read a proverb a day. 31 days in most months, in some months. There's 31 proverbs. So I, I've been doing it this past month. Read a proverb a day and just highlight one verse that spoke to me and then ask God to help me with the thing that he highlighted. And I'm growing in wisdom and knowledge and developing a, a, a deeper discerning spirit about me and what God's called me to do. And so these are ways that we can pursue and live out this reformation, which, by the way, changed the course of history for the entire world. God used this one man to change the entire world. And he can use anyone in this room to change the entire world or to change someone's entire world. If your world has been changed by Jesus, like we need to be in the scriptures, living out for his glory, telling people about the faith alone in Christ alone, showing them grace, the grace that we received. And if we do that, there's no, there's no telling what God will do. Amen? I feel like I've been mean today. Like, you, like it's weird when you stand up here and everyone's looking at you. It's like, Yeah. And mean, and I'm just mean, mean, see, I don't mean, but I'm just like, I don't listen, like this is a real moment. Like, I don't know, I don't know anything I can tell you to do as a pastor better than say, read your Bible. Like there's a lot of other stuff that we do that's really good, but there's nothing that's better than this. You know what I'm saying? So let's pray. And we'll move to the Lord's Supper, and we'll close with announcements. So, Father, thank you for Martin Luther. We know he wasn't perfect. He had his own faults and failures, just like we all do. But, God, you used him for your glory. And you helped use him to help the church rediscover that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. And, Lord, we want to live that out every day of our life. So teach us, Lord where we are falling short, and help us, God, to overcome. And we know that's how you operate. You never reveal things to shame or condemn, but you reveal because you desire better for us. And Lord, apart from your word, we wouldn't even know what to do or how to do it. So I pray, God, for myself, first and foremost, for my family, and for my church family, God, that we would be consumers of your word, and we would be partakers of your word. We would learn and apply and meditate on the things in the 66 books, which men and women have died for. Men and women are dying for to this day. Help us not be complacent. Help us not be distracted by other things. Help us be men and women who live for your glory alone, as detailed in your word alone. And even pray for this Tuesday night, Lord, as, as my neighbors will be coming and my church family will be present, Lord. I pray that you... You empower us, Lord, to be gracious and kind and to offer the truth, to offer the good candy for your glory and that you would save souls, Lord, and you would build your kingdom and you would wreck people's lives uh, for, for your glory. And so, God, between now and then, Lord, let us be uh, mindful to pray 
and mindful to uh, love everyone we come into contact with between here and there, but especially praying for those that we'll see that night. So we lift them up to you now. We ask God for you uh, to do what only you can do to reveal your glory to all of us and to everyone we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, amen.